Perfect. Marcus, how you doing? I'm good. How are you doing, Ravi? Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, thank you for joining us on the Bloomex podcast. On this. Oh, of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, you got, you're calling from Cambridge. Um, we were talking earlier before we started. That's right. Um, how's quarantine been up in Cambridge? How's COVID been? Yeah. No, <laughs> honestly, general, right? as much as we've all been hit by the pandemic, it actually it hasn't been as bad as it could have been. Like, we've been lucky. Mm -hmm. We haven't been hit as hard as Toronto or other parts of Canada, which is really yep. in that way. So I, it's nice, you know, as much as being quarantined can have its difficulties, it's, uh, it hasn't been too bad. Yeah, and that's a surprising fact about, the, about this, right? Like everyone's just kind of looking around and like, you know, kind of was kind of was sold zombie apocalypse, right? Like things would go bad really quick, gonna run out of food, logistics gonna break down, people be sick, Hospitals be overflowing, but that's the weirdest thing that that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. you know, for the large part, from the, from the majority of us outside looking in, it's like where, you know, where is this, uh, you know, this scary part of our life? And it's only through the news and through the power of social media we're seeing cases and how things are affected across the world. And we're like, okay, we're, I guess we're happy that it's not happening to us. Mm -hmm. But when does this become the new normal? When does it stop becoming a lockdown? And if people are still afraid to go outside and, and not continue on normal business, right? What, is, what does life look like in that kind of point of view? Well, like, how is a question that a lot of people have been asking in our world as well. Yeah, and that's what I'm interested in, in learning too. Like, how has this impacted especially startups like yourself, right? And the previous roadmap is different. You know, you go through an incubator accelerator you, and then you end up in your own co-working space and you grow out of there, right? And you hire and you bring onboard people the and you raise venture to like move that way. But... Mm. That model models changed, you know. Capital kind of kind of kind of frozen at the moment. Everyone's working out of homes and trying to work remotely. How has that impacted what you're trying to do? The biggest impact that it had on us is it forced us to pivot. So we were at we were at a very interesting position. See, back in January and February, we were coming up to releasing our MVP, like our first platform that would help with our primary service of helping manufacturers retool. You know, that was something that we were working on as the pandemic hit. But once, once we all went into lockdown, beginning of March, what we found was throughout our network, manufacturing and supply, you know, no one knew what to do. Like everyone's supply chains were shutting down. Everyone needed supplies and PPE that they'd never seen before. So we had to pivot. Like right away, we were having manufacturers and suppliers tell us, and even buyers like in the Canadian and US government, that we had never spoken with before that were all of a sudden looking for whatever help they could get in supply or manufacturing. And so we had to expand our market. We had to ramp up development. We had to completely change, maybe not completely change our focus, but we had to add in other services. So now rather than us just primarily helping manufacturers with retooling, we saw ourselves immediately being thrown into the supply world, into technology solutions that can help people reopen, into manufacturing retool, into material sourcing. Like we got thrown into going from just helping a manufacturer that wants to diversify to having to help manufacturers and buyers and suppliers build entire supply chains that didn't exist before. So mm. it's impacted us where we... I think that we've adapted very well. Like we've come out of it with a lot of experience with a much larger network. We're in revenue now, like just because of all of the demand and all the needs that have come up. But 
I, I could not have predicted this. Like I had no idea that we, I mean, not only the pandemic, but even just the changes that we've made, the developments that we've made, the partners that we've gained. It's strange. Like we, I think that's the biggest piece how it impacted us. We had to pivot in multiple directions and just open ourselves up to partnerships that we didn't think that we'd be getting involved with. Absolutely. Now, have you, are you in an incubator accelerator program or do you come out of one? Oh yeah, last year what we were focused, well, I was focused very primarily on accelerators when I was just growing capacity M for yeah. the first time. So we had, see, I've worked with startups and manufacturers for years. So I got to see the community, but last year was when I actually participated myself. So we had gotten accepted into Founder Institute first, which was March of last year. Uh, we, it was amazing. Like it built our, it helped us pivot our idea to really build and understand what we were trying to do. We got a lot of mentorship. We had a lot of partners. We had a ton of support. Then after graduating Founder Institute, we went to WeTech Alliance down in Windsor. So we were with that incubator with their scale up program. You know, Adam Castle, the manager down there has been amazing. Like he's been helping us out for months, even still, like after us leaving the incubator. And then after that, from about September to beginning of December, we were with Conestoga College with Rose Masnack. So she has her Conestoga Entrepreneurship Collective that she's been building in the college in Kitchener. We were given the chance to get mentorship through them as well. So last year was very heavy in accelerators and incubators. And that's what really, that's what got us off the ground like that's what taught us what we needed to do that's what showed us what the issues would be where our value proposition was so yeah we've been pretty heavily involved over the last year and now we're at the point where we're going out on our own yeah yeah and i mean what a time to go out on your own right and, and get into the market um how has that been like have you had to pivot your product offering like can you explain a little more about what what exactly you do for these companies Sure. So Capacity M, our main service is that, well, I should be, I guess, start with my experience. Like for the last 10 years, I've been working with manufacturers and tech startups in different roles, mostly through sales and business development. And one thing that I had seen firsthand, like in having sold and been inside of thousands of manufacturing plants around Southern Ontario is that there was a very frequent issue of companies, especially machine shops, like the smaller, the small to medium manufacturing companies that would have, they would have machinery that wasn't being used. Like they had personnel that wasn't being used. And this is just, as I was learning the reality of manufacturing, like this is the uncertainty, these are different variables. And these manufacturers were all asking kind of, not to me specifically, but asking in general, you know, how could we, how can we do this better? You know, how can we manage our excess capacity? How can we find a network of people or companies that we can sort of trade business back and forth with and trade this capacity so that I, as a manufacturing company owner, can keep all of my equipment that I may be renting or may own just running at all times. So that was, that was really the main focus. Like my passion, my love is in manufacturing. So I, that's what we set out to do was to help manufacturers keep all of their equipment running, like to make sure that they're at hundred percent capacity as often as they can be and not be hit as hard by the different forces and factors that change in the manufacturing world. So that's what we set out to do. And then when this all came to pass, we, like I said, like we kind of got thrown into the mix of trying to then coordinate everything around supply and procurement rather than just manufacturing. But, 
that's what we set out to do was to help manufacturers better utilize their excess capacity. Mm. That's, that's really interesting because I mean, this is a market of like supply chains and, and manufacturing just rapidly changing. Oh yeah. Right? How are, how are you plugging into that rapidly shifting marketplace? Then? You know, were you prepared for how systems were before and you built a model off of that or now or are you constantly adjusting? You know, it's, it's interesting because we, I think that this pandemic, it, I mean, it's been a mix, like in a few ways where we've had to pivot and where we've had to add in supply chain and sourcing that made it a little bit difficult. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's sure what happened to lighting here. <laughs> I know I needed to get someone like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. Sorry about that. I don't know if I'll be able to get okay. it right again. So we found that now that manufacturers, now that a big issue that they're seeing is their supply chain resilience, like with, with it's helped us. Like now that our, now that everyone's supply chains have been so shocked by there being scarcity in material, scarcity in, in just availability of product and as well, and this I underestimated, but in the number of scams and brokers and people that are just opportunistically trying to jump into the market, Mm -hmm. We could not have expected what we've seen. Like the last three months have taught me more about how variable this entire market has been, probably more than the last 10 years of experience that I've had in this market. Just seeing how quickly this can change, how quickly the needs can change, how manufacturers are being forced to pivot and go into even industries and businesses that they've never seen before. Like we couldn't have predicted it. But in a strange way, now that everybody's supply chains are... I don't know what the right word would be, but are in flux and that they're, that they're so uncertain. That has almost pushed us into a position where we need to step up. Like now we're coming into play where now our service, rather than being, you know, rather than a manufacturer thinking, you know, maybe every few months this could happen where our machines are needed or where this, our machines go down. Now we're seeing that this is a daily, weekly, monthly need to be adapting and retooling and changing the direction companies are going in. So yeah, yeah. it's been very interesting to see the change and it's taught us a lot and we were just responding as well as we can. Mm -hmm. huh. That's, so you basically, as a startup, you're, uh, you're using a nimbleness and uh, ability to you know, rapidly shift in the market space to uh, give that to other companies to your client co companies, right? What, what are some problems you're facing? Well, definitely supply availability is the biggest difficulty because we're not just seeing individual supplies like, you know, with COVID-19, we hear about masks and ventilators and face shields and all these things and hand sanitizer. It's, it's gotten even worse than that. Like what we've been trying to do is help, is help companies find just the equipment or just find the material or just find ethanol to make hand sanitizer or to find plastic so that they can make a face shield. Like what we've seen is that supply chains all the way down to raw material have been rocked by this and are having issues really focusing themselves and getting themselves up to speed. So it's, I, I could not have expected it to happen like this. We did oh, yeah. this thing. <laughs> Are you, are you calling off a laptop? Or a yeah, laptop? I am. Sorry, cool. I think so, that, might, that might be the best I can do for you. Here, let me see if I can turn a little bit. 
There we go. There, that looks a little bit better, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's try that. That's much better. Um, yeah, so he's going back to that, that train of thought, right? Mm. Things being disrupted and, and, and uh, your, problem, your problems. Like for somebody outside looking in, what does that look like? What does procurement look like of materials, supply chain? Like how would, how would someone on the outside who has not, no experience of like how people get things done or manufactured, right? Look at things and be explained to how did you previously work? What's being changed and what's the disruption right now? Like what's happening right now? In from the outside in, hmm, the thing that comes to mind and the thing that I think was a variable before but has become even important now is just trust. Like if someone is looking in on procurement from the outside, I feel like it looks very transactional. You know, I need this, you know, I Google this, I find a marketplace, I put in an order and that stuff shows up. Like everyone would take that for granted. But now that this is, now that everything's been so crazy with the pandemic, I think that what people don't realize is just how much mistrust there is, like how many scams there are, how many, how much opportunism there is. And I think that the thing that even we underestimated being thrown into the supply side and thrown into this, we underestimated how difficult it was going to be to establish trust all the way up a supply chain. Like it's not simply, I need this by this. It's, hey, I need this, and now I'm competing against six different countries, 100 different private corporations, people with relationships, people are outbidding each other, people are, governments can even come in and take product. So it's, we didn't even know really what we were getting into taking on the entire supply chain. And it's essentially been three months of us just trying to establish trust. Like we've probably contacted or been contacted and worked with, or at least tried to work with a few hundred suppliers now. And we didn't have any suppliers in our network three months ago. And at the end of the day, after three months of working, of trying to close deals and help with deals in Canada and the U.S. with private companies and retail and manufacturers, at the end of three months, we've come out of it with only a few dozen suppliers that we can actually trust. Like, it's not like everybody puts a website up and you know the product is going to show up anymore. It's, it's a complete unknown. Like, we're almost building our network, just having to come up with different processes that for due diligence or to try to figure out if what we're seeing is real. We didn't expect that to be one of the biggest challenges that we'd be facing right now. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I mean, going back to that about establishing trust, you know, I mean, how do people trust each other right now in this climate, right? You go through known channels, like, you know, you find people who know people. Uh, are you going, like, it's almost like we're going back in time to a different way of doing things, right? We're like, oh, you're a friend of my friend, right? So I'll, I will transact with you. Or is there yeah, no more, like, automated solution? Yeah? That's been the main difficulty is it's, we've started that's when we were asked to get into supply that's where we started i went to the people who i knew personally you know can you help me figure out where to go in this market so that i can make sure that i don't get someone ripped off or get or walk myself into a scam or lose a buyer money like can you help me with this but then the crazy part is that you know that seems like it would work and it did to a certain degree but then even over the last three months like i've had companies or partners of ours come to us and tell us 
you know, we were working with this company for two months, like since the beginning of the pandemic, we did due diligence, we got our certifications, we got samples. And even then, even when they had it through personal contacts, half the time they're seeing it bump into scams because it's so difficult to navigate. And there are so many companies that are not only really popping up out of nowhere and established companies that are changing their focuses or changing into other supplies. Oh, we're just, it's been very difficult. Like that's really, that's the biggest thing I can say is that we tried to use personal networks and that has worked now after three months of even having to bring in a due diligence lawyer to try to help us evaluate these. And now we have, you know, like I said, a few dozen suppliers that we're going to be launching supplies with and that we're going to be invited. We've been invited on to a few marketplaces in Ontario to provide their supplies, but it was not easy to get there. Like there are hundreds of companies that all seem legitimate. You know, every single one is a website. Everyone has people that answer the phone on the other end. Everyone says that they have previous sales. Everyone says that they know a friend of a friend of a friend that's connected to you. And so you can trust them. You can trust them. We're even seeing contracts being sent around that are not being enforced. Like I, I, it's probably two, three dozen of, no, probably more than that, probably more than 50 non-disclosure agreements, you know, non-circumvention agreements that I'm signing with people that then disappear two days later, or that still end up being a scam, or that then even with a contract signed, then try to skirt around and take a contact from you. Like, it's almost like, the rules of engagement for business have been half thrown out the window just in, you know, in the interest of just for some people making a quick buck, which has been very frustrating. You know, I can't even tell you how many deals that we've done, probably 10 or 20 that were multi-million dollar deals that have fallen apart because someone just once it comes down to it, almost admits that they were lying right at the end. Like right when you finally say, okay, We've been talking for two weeks. You've been sending me specs. You've sent me a sample. Okay, here's a buyer. And then all of a sudden they disappear. Or once you say, I'm not going to pay you up front this, this money, you know, you have to send me product first, or we're going to do this like how it's done in the real world. They disappear. People that you thought you could trust or that you've been working with for weeks. And I, you know, business can always be uncertain, of course, but I've never seen I've never seen trusting companies and partners be this difficult or take this much time and effort and money just to try to figure out who will even just tell you the truth. And then after that, you have to deal with getting the supply, getting, getting these, the PPE or whatever you need to who needs it like that. I never expected it to be that difficult, but I don't know. I mean, I, I have to look at the bright side and just say that it's kind of hardened us. Like now we have, supply chains and networks and people that we've never connected with before who we have a lot of trust with because as you have these people that you can't trust you know the few partners that you have you start to kind of fight through these situations together so i don't know it's hard to explain but i never expected it to be like this like it's it's ruthless like in a lot yeah. of ways like what we're seeing around the world and all the changes like it's crazy it's it's really interesting you, you you explain it this way because I mean, this is like one of the, the touch points we talk about on this podcast, how technology is almost reverting us as a culture, right? We're going back to times when 
we, you know, everyone had their own farm and farmed their own food and, you know, traded a little bit of the surplus to the rest of the town for extra goods, right? Like everyone kind of is doing almost semi-independently operating. And the technology layer is allowing you to, uh, to communicate, yes, but also compete at a global scale. So a lot right. more individual actors acting at, a large, at, at, at large capacities. Um, and it's kind of dampen the market for almost everybody in that kind of sense, right? So uh, what does this look like in like the fourth industrial revolution, right? How, how do we network these networks uh, without the need for trust? Like tr how does trustless interactions happen? You know, it's interesting that you asked that specifically because that has been the focus of our platform. You know, before what we were already developing was, you know, when a company has a machine that is available or, when a, or even now with the pivot, when a company has supplies, we thought of it as, you know, what information do we need to make a sale? You know, we need a need, we need what they have, we need a price, maybe some specs, that kind of thing. But then we realized that as simple as that process sounds, once we got on the phone with you know buyers and suppliers and different brokers and different actors in this kind of play, that it's so much more complicated than that. You know, where we thought before that we could make a platform that would say, where we assumed a company would come up and say, I've got these machines, I can do this on this date at these prices, where we thought that would be the case, it's been the exact opposite. Like even getting an answer of where someone's factory is located has been more difficult than I've had in getting even more confidential information from companies in, in previous deals that I've done. So what we're now, and this is something that honestly, we're still trying to kind of work the kinks out of. Now we've been forced to try to build, I wouldn't even call it trust anymore. Like we almost have to build trust that you don't actually have to put a risk on into the site. Like we're having to now push companies to sign contracts with each other before they even tell each other their names or tell each other one price, even a benchmark, or even tell them what their production level could potentially be. So we're finding that because of all the uncertainty with happening here, you know, trust was already difficult to establish in manufacturing because there's so much on the line. You know, for a manufacturer to say yes to a deal, that means materials, that means cost, that means time, that means labor, that means so many things that they would have to commit to and that can be difficult for them. Now what we're seeing is that it's gotten even 10 times harder for us to establish trust. And where before we viewed our website and our platform as sort of a matching service, now we have to see it as a trust building service. And we're still trying to figure out what documents, what contracts, what information will actually build that because we're realizing that, you know, like I said, even the contracts that we're signing are not being enforced. Like they're just not being respected. There's almost too many at, at going on at the same time. You know, we hear about, you know, you hear about 3M with all these problems with the mass where they were starting to sue companies that to try to retaliate against all these people price gouging and trying to use this opportunity to take money or to scam people. But the problem is just a hundred times worse. Like those are just the people that got caught. I can probably look through my emails and chats and things that I've been pushing through and that we've been involved in over the last three months and pick out more than a hundred people that we found to be scams that were even some of them were established businesses before, you know, businesses that used to have defined processes and that used to have contractual agreements, these companies that even we've heard of, even they are starting to skirt rules. And like, 
there's no names. Like I'm not saying anything in like an accusatory way, just in general, we're seeing a lot of these processes break down in the name of just trying to quickly. Can you give, can you give an example of this? Like, like, like without naming a name or getting too granular into it, like, can you give an example of what is breaking down or like an example of, of trust being broken or a contract that does not really exist procurement problems? Like, well, the first issues that we saw were around N95 masks. See, when we had been approached by a couple of buyers, they were specifically looking for the 3M masks. And I've sold these before, like just in industrial supply settings, years early, like years prior to now. And I remember these masks being, you know, a dollar each, you know, a dollar fifty each at most for the highest quality. Now you get a box of 10 for 20, $25. I remember that being the end user price. And as soon as we were asked to go into this market, the first price that I was offered was $8 a mask. And that was directly from the manufacturer. Like wow. Times what the price should have been like. And so the first deal that we were engaged on, we knew that something felt strange. Like we knew that it didn't look typical to the market, but we tiptoed in just to see, cause we knew we weren't going to take a commission. We were going to, we had our fees, like we have what we do. We knew we weren't going to be opportunistic about this, but we thought, you know, we have a group of people, again, through personal contacts that say, here's a 3M dealer, you know, here's what we can get. And it seemed like it was normal. Like that would be how I'm used to doing business. But then after this was about a week and a half, this was the first few, deal, few deals that we did. And it was with the US government. And every single time that we got on a phone call, the biggest issue was people demanding commission. It was almost like as soon as a few companies started to push the price up because of the opportunism of it. Every single company started trying to get away with $6, with $5, with $4. Everybody started testing this process. And as we saw that, every call we'd go on, every single one would break down where we're on the call. I would be on the call mediating saying, okay, we have this production, we have this supply, here's the price, let's do it. And then all of a sudden, one of these four brokers who I didn't realize were all involved kicks up in the conversation and says, no, I need 10 cents a mask, you know, on 10 million masks. I need a million dollars in commission because of the two hours of work that I just put in trying to network some people on LinkedIn. And then you sit on the call and you're like, wait, what is going on here? Like, I thought it was a pandemic. Like I thought we were trying to help people out. We're trying to come in and remove ourselves from the process. Just do this as legitimately as we can not let ourselves fall into these problems. And we had multiple deals back to back to back to back to back where we'd have people coming on and just last minute, right as we're about to sign, right as we're about to send the agreement go, oh wait, you know, I need a quarter million dollars, half a million dollars, a million dollars, $5 million in commission for no reason. Like just because they think because everyone else is doing it that that's allowed. Now. That has been mm -hmm. the most frustrating part of this entire thing is it's like, you're on a call with the head of a hospital in the United States that is telling you that they need 30 million masks or else they're going to see 50,000 frontline workers probably not be able to wear anything to protect themselves for the next month. And then you have these three people who have never done business before, who don't have a real business, who jumped into this market out of nowhere, trying to demand these outrageous commissions when all we're trying to do is run our standard practice like our completely legitimate already established value proposition like it it's so frustrating because you know not only is it 
conflicting with us just trying to do our work. But then, you know, this is probably the most meaningful sales I've ever done. You know, I've never been selling products before that could potentially save lives or that could potentially prevent a pandemic from continuing to spread around the world. Like that's a situation I'm not used to. And it's just, it's, I just, it's so frustrating. Like I just cannot wrap my head around how crazy like things have gotten. Like it's been so difficult. What are governments doing about this? Like, are they coordinating at all? So the Canadian government, the U.S. government, from our experience, have been very different in their responses. And I mean, I'm Canadian and I would say this no matter what, but like truly the Canadian response has been incredible. I would mm -hmm. say in, a, in the way that they did things very, very well was in how the Canadian healthcare system and the government held all their regulations in place. Like there were plenty of products that I was sending them that where they, if I sent them a product, even though I knew it was legitimate, they would put it under so much scrutiny that even some of the products we sent wouldn't get accepted. Whereas in the United States, with all the buying groups, whether private or government that we're seeing, it's like what, you know, you and I have been seeing on the news. It literally is the wild, wild west out there. We would get on a call with a buyer and then the buyer would just go offline. And then we would talk to the contact that put us in touch with them. And they'd say, oh yeah, you know, their deals just got beaten. They just got outpriced. And then the government took all their masks and then this and this and this. So the government responses have been very different. And I mean, I'm just happy to be on this side of the border because all of the hospitals and the government, like both provincial and federal, I think that's the thing that I liked the most that they did is that they've held their standards high. You know, they didn't say, this is a problem. So now let's open the floodgates. Everybody bid against each other, just all free for all. No, they kept the controls in place to try to make sure that we did it right. So mm -hmm. that's been a huge difference is I think just the controls that were kept in place in Canada and that were seemed to have been kind of abandoned in the United States, just in the interest of, I don't know. Which is crazy to think about, right? Like Canada is, yeah, I mean, it's, it is a smaller market, but mm. and we have this sense of community because we have universal-based healthcare. You know, we're, I think Canadians are used to taking care of each other, right? Mm. And I think the, uh, culturally, as a society, we have like come together to figure out, you know, let's just figure out trust. Let's just, let's just operate, you know? How can we help? How can we exchange value? Yeah. But if you go into an international market, that, that kind of cohesion is gone. Like, you know, it's not, it's not being seen. No. And it's weird that America with its, you know, manufacturing might is breaking down just because people are not coordinating, mm -hmm. right? And there's no, and, and, you know, government's traditionally been one, want to be hands off, right? As much as possible in like a free capitalist market. Yeah. But the problem with this, and this is geopolitical, feel free to, uh, you know, jump in uh, with your thoughts or not, but um, like, the Chinese model of like rapid rep response, right? Being able to, yes, we have ca capitalism, but we are, it's jointly, you know, integrated with government. And because of that, we have ability to, you know, to provide more, like more um, transactability with themselves. Like how they were able to shut down the country, level of coordination they showed, not a lot of countries are now looking at them with like, is this a model that we should follow? Almost, See, it's right? an interesting point because you're right. Like in terms of their response, like in locking down and a few things that they've done. Yes. I think that they are a model that we could look at, but at the same time, 
and this is information that we started getting from suppliers that we were connecting with in China, I think that same model of the private manufacturing sector being so intertwined with government is, out, is now starting to work in the exact opposite direction. Because now what we're seeing is now the same companies that we either already had relationships with or who we gained relationships with through you know, our partner network or our contacts. Now what we're seeing, we're having to move our entire supply network out of China. Like at this point, we are 100% focused away from China. Like it's, it's Southeast Asia, it's Europe, it's South America. We're looking everywhere else because what we're seeing is now those same private companies that a month ago were able to send us samples even more quickly than companies in the States were. Now we're seeing the government restricting exports. Now we're seeing the Chinese government take all masks before they even make it to a ship. Like now we've actually we've seen every one of our Chinese suppliers essentially tell us there's nothing that we can do because all of our power has been taken away. So in terms of, I think that the government oversight there and like, you know, I'm no political scientist, but from what we're seeing from a supply side, it's starting to have an adverse effect. And to the point where that trust issue again, trust is already hard enough, but now with all the difficulty of things coming out of China because of the government intervention, everyone is backing away like i it's been fascinating i mean we're seeing a lot of companies and a lot of businesses from countries outside of china that are really stepping up like they're realizing that there's a void created now they're realizing that you know beyond all the political ramifications we can all read about you know u.s china trade wars and things like that just based on the reality on the ground product is not coming out of that country it's not making it out. Like supplies are not making it out. Materials are not making it out. Manufacturers are becoming opaque all of a sudden to a degree that we hadn't seen before because it seems like that government intervention is starting to go in the opposite direction. And now, you know, we can't blame them. You know, it looks like they're trying to take care of themselves just as a lot of countries are, but it's been interesting to see. Like, I think that government oversight has started to show a negative where now, you know, we're looking at, working with partners in Indonesia, in Vietnam, in Cambodia, like we're having to look everywhere else. And all of those countries are stepping up. Like they're actually giving us a lot more of a feeling of trust than we're getting from the large established businesses in China that we're already selling to North America. So it's been interesting, like, and I don't know, you can interpret that how you want, but I think that Canada, from my perspective, and of course the different market size is a factor, but I think they've been doing a better job of walking that line. Like where there's that regulatory body, there are the standards being held, but they're not cracking down. You know, they're not restricting us from helping each other. They're not restricting us from trying to send product elsewhere. So I don't know, I've, I've never been this intertwined with Chinese business or Chinese manufacturing, but it's been a bit of a crash course. and. You know, if, if you would ask me three months ago where I thought I would go for supply, I would have told you China like just right away. You know, it's, uh, it's cheap. That's where everything is. That's what everybody thinks. Now, I, I don't know. Now, I wouldn't think of it. Like, now I'm trying to go everywhere but just because it seems like whatever processes are going on there or whatever the motives are, it's just not there. They don't appear to be open for business or open for partnership to really work with people right now. So we're moving away from them. Mm. It's, it's interesting you said that like is there any patterns like geopolitically that's popping up like this because you know like if you need animation designers you kind of look to the philippines if you need uh, like you know if you need graphic designers look to like poland or western europe 
um, Python developers looking to like Ukraine, right? Like there's like patterns kind of emerge in, in when it comes to labor pools and talent and skill sets. Uh, is the same kind of thing happening with manufacturing and supply? I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, while you can say, you know, that we, we generally see, you know, those Python developers or designers from certain countries, I think that right now it's an unknown. There are a lot of different groups and countries that are starting to try to develop core competencies or, you know, come up and say, we've changed this around. Now we're going to be the best at this and face shield or hand sanitizer. But I don't think it's really landed yet because what we're seeing now is not only different countries providing the same products and different products and different suppliers popping up all over the place. We even have manufacturers that we're speaking with, like, for example, there's a partner in Indonesia that we're talking with right now who may even want to build production capacity in Canada. So I think rather than it being like countries with pre-established competencies and supplies are coming up and saying, we've got this, I think everybody's trying something new. Like we're seeing people innovating all over the place. Like we're seeing manufacturers that have never partnered with people before partnering internationally for the first time. So I think, I think we're seeing the emergence of kind of a new, I don't know what to call it. It's like a lot of countries are starting to come into core competencies that they didn't have before, rather than us seeing the core competencies that they already had becoming useful in the pandemic. We're seeing like, from my perspective, it's all changing like every day. Hmm, interesting. Cool. That's, that's, I mean, that's a frustrating part too, when patterns don't emerge, it's like you don't know how to react faster, right? Mm -hmm. What do you see is gonna be in the future? Like four months from now, four years from now, 40 years from now, like, you know, based on what you're seeing now and the changes, how, so, how are we progressing? So from both government and from our private partners, we're being told that it looks like it'll be like this for another year. So like we're looking at about 12 to 18 months where PPE is going to be a major focus. It's we're going to see other areas of the economy open up again, like, you know, while businesses open, but we're hearing things like, you know, we see the airlines are probably going to get hit permanently. We're seeing restaurant businesses probably going to get hit permanently just because now they're going to be at about half capacity because of having to respect social distancing and the uh, like social distancing. And from, see, I, I have a bit of a, a personal connection. Like my dad is in the military as well. So he also, you know, he wants to take care of us. And so he's telling us about what things look like. And even from a military perspective, they're saying 12 to 18 months where it will still be eased lockdowns but it will be very heavy on ppe there will still be a lot of rhetoric in the political sphere about needing to make sure this doesn't come back managing the second wave that's coming in and then in terms of the next few years all i can really say in terms of my opinion is what i've read from past pandemics you know we've heard this compared to the spanish flu quite a few times and we look at when from reading into that era, after the Spanish flu, it took about five years, you know, for people to be comfortable in large crowd settings, like for sports events to open up again, for things that, for life to go completely back to normal. So, you know, I think that it will go back to normal within a few years, but in terms of this current situation, my information is saying that it's gonna feel like this for another year to a year and a half. And that's gonna hinge very heavily on what kind of second waves pop up, kind of what vaccines become available, what sort of PPE supply chains get established and become efficient. Like we wanna see the PPE supply chains not be a free for all bidding contest. We wanna see it 
where it calms down a bit, you know, where people start to figure out these few companies can provide this and this and this. And I mean, we're hoping that Capacity M can help with that because just in the coming week on Monday of next week, we've been invited to be one of the first supplier groups that's going to be populating a marketplace that McMaster is launching. That's going to be providing certified PPE that we've done all the due diligence on for all retailers in Ontario and potentially Eastern Canada. So we're all trying to make it normal again. Like we're all trying to establish supply chains again, but mm -hmm. from what I'm seeing and hearing and from our network, what we're being told is that life is going to feel pretty similar to this, or at least people are going to feel you know, a little uncertain for about 12 to 18 months. I mean, what about all this talk of opening, reopening up the economy? Right, and going I mean, back, just opening yeah, things up. Yeah, that's like, kind of the what big are... dilemma, right? Is it's like safety versus economic growth and economic stability and trying not to let our economy shrink. I mean, another family member I have, my grandmother worked for, worked for private medicine for about 30 years. So she lived through a few smaller pandemics. And from a few other scientists we partnered with, people that were trying to build a relationship with so that we can know the truth of this so that we can try to understand what's going on i think it'll just it will be depending on the second wave like when we look at the information for past pandemics there's always another wave there's always a second even potentially a third potentially a fourth it will all come down to the social distancing it'll come down to the mass it'll come down to the hand washing but some of it will be inevitable just the fact that we are not all holed up in our homes will cause a second wave. That's what we're being told. Like that's what we're being told to expect. And so that's where that 12 to 18 months comes from is that it's, it's inevitable. I mean, I was reading today that we're already starting to see potentially the beginning of a second wave in Europe as well as in China. Like, I think that's going to be the reality, but that will be the determining factors really how well we manage the continued infection rate. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about vision, right? Like, let's talk about like a, like a net positive. Like, what can we build out of this disruption during the fourth industrial wave that'll be the infrastructure of the future? Well, at least in terms of manufacturing supply, I think that if there's one big lesson here is that manufacturers, especially, and suppliers need to have, need to be more dynamic. Like the, this whole trend of a manufacturing having a preferred supplier list of 10 or 20 or 30 suppliers that they always go to, I don't think that that can happen anymore. Because even once things start to go back to normal, the risk of this happening again is always going to be there. And so what I think is going to happen is that, and this is back to that technology layer, I think that technology is going to play an even bigger part now than it has been for the last few decades, is that it's going to be not only how we still communicate and do business while respecting that social distancing, but technology is going to be the thing that makes us more, like more adaptable and just more flexible for these things happening in the future. Because that has been the biggest issue that we've seen is that a company that could rely on its suppliers at the end of February can't rely on them first week of March. Like all of a sudden everything fell apart. And so I think in terms of the industrial side, we're going to see a lot more flexibility. And in terms of industry 4.0 driving that, where you have ICT, where you have SaaS solutions, where you have IoT, like all these different things you can throw in. I think that manufacturers will be a lot more open to that now. 
because they've seen the effect, they've seen the benefit. And I mean, we're going to be front and center on helping that become a new trend. I mean, do you ever see the, see it where a technology layer can connect the manufacturing industries to a point where it's, it's almost automated fulfillment? See, that's where we're on the road towards. See, that is our goal. And that's what we're looking at. Now, a couple of variables that come into play is that one big topic that manufacturers are not used to yet is information sharing. Because see, if you have that automated network that can match two companies, there are holds you can put in place. Like, you know, we don't have to let manufacturers see each other's machinery or see each other's business or see directly into each other. But manufacturers, they need to kind of get the idea and become comfortable with the idea that you know, they have to share their data. Like that's going to be a big issue with, with industry 4.0, with that connectivity, like that automatic fulfillment. That's what we're working on, but it's so difficult. It comes right back to trust. And this is the kind of trust issue that existed before the pandemic. Like sharing data, we've seen, you know, Communitech, we've seen different accelerator centers try to do this with businesses in a more general sense. And it is difficult, like building trust there. But I think that now with what the pandemic has shown us, it may be the time where that becomes something people are willing to look at, like where they gain flexibility through technology and they see the benefit of it rather than, you know, treating it as a trust issue of not wanting to give their information up. So I think it is going in that direction. And we're seeing a lot of articles and a lot of information out of manufacturing companies that are also saying that that's what they want to do now, which is, the first time I've ever seen manufacturing companies coming out and saying, I want to share my data. So it'll be difficult, but I think that if there were any a time where we could put that into place and where that could become successful and be effective, it's not. What about the use of like, R what is it, RPMs, robotic process managers, uh, the robots? So and, that uh, one is a little more in... Am I saying that correctly? What's, uh, what's the acronym? I, I don't know exactly what would be. There are a few different technologies and softwares and like different yeah. offerings you get in that space. But what we haven't seen so far, like machine vision has been a thing that's been around for a few years now. Like where your actual machinery is being tracked, where you're seeing data from right. just that piece of equipment be brought in. We haven't really seen this, we almost call it facility vision. Like where now you want to have a vision over your entire facility, all your capabilities that can then be shared facility to facility. We haven't, at least from our research, what we've been seeing, that has not really been done yet. So we're- so What's the utility in that? What, what would that look like seeing your, 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 your plant or your, your factory? What does that mean? Well, see, that's a part of kind of what we're building into the software. It's like, how do you properly categorize people's equipment? You know, how do you say this piece of equipment that's valued at this amount, you know, what capacity can it output? You know, how many parts can you make? Well, different materials of different types, different sizes. That's something a little more proprietary that we're working on, like how we actually categorize that information and match it. But it is okay. difficult. And it's because of that data sharing side. And it's just because that's not how the industry's done it until potentially now. So it's not to the point where you can like, you know, put in like a, like a, like a, like a robotic part or a part of a machine, like the, the manufacturer equipment, like zero number and get the specs of what they, what exactly it does. Like you can't do that. It would be possible if everyone were willing to share all their data. 
but that is so much harder like then you're getting into intellectual property like then you're getting really Mm. so that's that is the place that's kind of the line that you walk is how do you give enough information enough connectivity enough like how do you give enough detail that a manufacturer can have that trust can make a decision can know if they go in without asking a manufacturer to just hand over every single document every single drawing every CAD drawing every design that they have so it's a line that we're walking and I mean we I think we've found at least a way forward to really validate this and we're starting to validate it with manufacturers in southern Ontario we're starting to look at different projects we're opening up into it's it's something that it's difficult but I think we'll be able to do it because now that we've had so many conversations with manufacturers and suppliers we now know how much information we can give. We know what they're willing to share. We know what they need. I don't know. I, it's a difficult problem to solve where you don't give too much information to breach confidentiality, but you give enough to give value. That's been a line that we've been trying to find. And I don't know, kind of like stay tuned. I think we found it. Cool. That's, that's really interesing. I mean, what you're trying to do uh, is a, a different way, like a different methodology, methodology of finding out how, how, to help, how to network manufacturing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, from the inside out. And that's, that's different. I haven't heard that, uh, have that, heard that approach before. Um, you know, I mean, what can we do with that? Like, we had a company that came on the podcast, right? Called 3Dscapes, right? Um, shout out to Reza and James. And what they what they built is they took a uh, like a, a gaming system model of a city, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it had a full game engine running this, a 3D simulation of the city. They first engineered all the specs to the, to the upright. But what they can do is input data into this model and run this city as a simulation of what it is happening in real time versus in the past versus future, right? Mm-hmm. It's almost like SimCity where you're seeing like how everything kind of moves and flows, but you can get granular and open up and see how water flows in the city. You know, you can see how electricity flows, how money flows, like how people flow. Like you can see the different layers of this, right? Imagine that for city planning and for a whole bunch of different things, right? Even gaming and all that, right? I mean, what can, if, if, if these plants and, and factories and manufacturing do share this data, right? And it becomes like a layer where like, People can request things or, manif- or, 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 or build things or, or run things at an automated level almost. You know, like what does that look like? What does the GUI look like or how people interact with that machine? So at that question speaks to more of our vision of where we're looking at ourselves growing in the future. So while we're partnering and networking with manufacturers, you know, even outside of the pandemic, like while we're working with these companies that we want to help build these capacity, We've also been making sure to build relationships at the city level, like with economic development departments, especially in Southern Ontario, because Mm. you've hit it on the head. Like once you start to connect manufacturers, see, this is an issue that cities and regions really, that regions have is that the global, the globalization of manufacturing is great, but then you have cities that may have a thousand manufacturing companies in them and none of them are working together. None of them know that they each exist. None of them know that there is a company down the street or across the city that they could use where right now they're sending apart 5,000 kilometers away to have one machining process done to it. So once we start to get that critical mass of manufacturers that are sharing, and once we get that network, and, and once we get that automatic fulfillment, what we'll start to see 
is that cities and regions and even potentially, you know, provinces, states, countries can start to actually have almost a coordinated local supply chain that is all connected, that's working together. So we'll almost see, you know, the globalization will still be supported, but we want to support localization so that we see these clusters of, and these groups and manufacturers start to work together where they not only save money, you know, they not only save logistics, they're not only closer and can build that trust more easily with companies, but then we also see individual economies start to strengthen. So that is something far on the horizon for us is looking at being able to connect networks of manufacturers like that network of networks where we can start to optimize networks of cities or of regions so that we can just give more value to each area and help all the manufacturers in those groups. So it's interesting that you say, because that's a direction that we're going in. It won't be easy, but that's what we're hoping to see. And especially with this pandemic, I mean, it's the same thing. It's kind of showing people that as much as globalization is great, you know, it takes one week of a shutdown for your entire supply chain to disappear. And then you don't know who else to go to, even if there is someone, you know, a kilometer away, 10, 100 kilometers away. So that's, that's something that we're hoping to do because we think there's a lot of benefits there where we can combine the power of globalization with localization. Yeah. Cool. I mean, that's great. Uh, I mean, it's quite a vision to work towards. Um, I'm interested in seeing, you know, I, I would love to have you to come back, you know, in a few months and, and fill us in more of how things have shifted and, where, where you are to, to get into the joint vision because, I mean, that is kind of the promise of the next wave of industrialization, right? More machines communicating uh, with uh, humans in more higher level inputs, right? And everything kind of coordinated mm -hmm. and running a more systematic function, right? But we don't know what that looks like. <laughs> but we know, we kind of have an idea no, where we're kind of headed and how things can be layered together to function, but but uh, how that, where that uh, ends up, you know, that's me interesting to see. Yeah. I think well, our, we're going to do our best. Kind of connection yeah. issue. Yeah. So we're having a little bit of a connection issue. That's okay. I see it now though. You, you see the lag? Yeah, yeah I do. Cool. So, yeah, the major lag. So we'll cut the show here. I mean, it's it's been about roughly an hour. Um, so I'll cut the I'll cut the line and uh, thank you for coming on. But stick around for about two minutes. But uh, we'll we'll have a quick debrief, right? Okay. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for, thank you for coming on, man. It's been great. <laughs>